Ghost Herd Stories, we tell and write the stories of veterans and first responders for their families and friends. We love storytelling and believe there is nothing more inspiring and nothing that gets people to take action like a great story. Families and friends want to know the sacrifices we made, the services we rendered, and the people we lifted so they can be inspired and learn about the legacy we left. Our podcast is the face of our company, but we want every family who cares to know about the experiences their veteran and or first responder went through for them. We interview veterans and first responders, collect pictures, write their stories, and compile them in a book for their families and friends to enjoy. Oftentimes, it's difficult for us to talk to our loved ones about what we did, saw, and heard while serving. At Ghost Turd Stories, we bridge the gap. For pricing, visit linktr.ee forward slash ghost turd stories and click on the second tab directly under the podcast link called Let Us Write Your Story. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash G-H-O-S-T-T-U-R-D-S-T-O-R-I-E-S. Hello everyone and welcome to Ghost Turd Stories. I'm your host, Troy Gent. Ghost Turd Stories' mission is using humorous stories from veterans and first responders to reduce the burden of families whose veteran or first responder committed suicide. Ghost Turd Stories' vision is to use humor from veteran and first responder stories to prevent suicide within our ranks and reduce the burden of families whose veteran or first responder committed suicide. We hoped to attract veterans and first responders, as well as those interested in knowing more about what it's like to be in our shoes while we wear or wore those shoes. All right, welcome back to the Ghost Heard Stories podcast. We're continuing our episode from last week. We're interviewing Troy Gent, and this is Rebecca. Becca Gent, the editor and publisher of the podcast, as well as Troy's daughter. And so last week we left off on your stories about your deployments to Okinawa. And now I'd like to go into the first time you left the Marine Corps and what that period in your life looked like, what you were going through mentally there, if there was any PTSD from your enlisted years or what your life was like for those four years as a civilian before becoming an officer. I'm going to admit something here to the uh, masses that I'm not proud of, but I was on what they call terminal leave, and I had about 60 days of it. So I got back from Okinawa the second time in August of 2021. Sorry, mistake. 2001. So I had about 60 days of leave saved up and they basically what it is, they pay you to take leave until your end of active service date. So I left the Marine Corps and was getting paid for two months until my end of service date. And when I had about a month left in the Marine Corps, but I was on leave, I woke up one morning and I remember walking in the bathroom at my wife's 
mother's house and was splashing water on my face to wake myself up. And I heard my mother-in-law say, it's World War III. And I thought, what in the heck? And it was September 11th of 2001. And I walked out of the bathroom and I said, what are you talking about? And she says, we're at war, we're at war. And so then I had to get a TV. I had to find a TV. She didn't have a TV. So we, we drove over to to her mother's house, so uh, my wife, Ami's grandmother, and we were watching the footage, and I can remember thinking to myself, oh, I just, I'm getting out of the Marine Corps, and I don't want to get sucked back in, which was very, very selfish. And so I had to live with that for the next few years as I was going to college with the idea that I wasn't willing to go back in the Marine Corps to fight a war that we didn't start. And so that nagged at me and nagged at me while I was in college until the point of 2000 and I guess it was 2006. And I finally told myself, I have to go do something. I have to make up for this regret that I have about how I left the Marine Corps the first time. And so... I joined the National Guard in hopes that that would appease the regrets that I had. And I got trained as a forward observer for an artillery unit in Utah. And I remember having a conversation with my cousin, Joe Gent. And he was he had been a captain in the Marine Corps before he got out. And he said, Troy, you know, you can deploy with the National Guard, but if you want to do it right because you are a prior service Marine. He says, I think if you went back in the Marine Corps, you'd be happier. So I thought about that. And so I wrote a letter to the commanding general in Salt Lake city, requesting that I would be allowed to be separated from the national guard and get a commission in the Marine Corps instead. And he, he, uh, honored that and wrote a letter back to me and said what you want to do with the marine corps by getting a commission and becoming a platoon commander you can do more that way than you could ever do in the national guard for us so i'm happy to let you go just to clarify when you got out the first time you were not glad but well i had all these big plans that i worked so hard to make and there was no one asking me to go back in. Like, I didn't avoid anything. I didn't get called back up. I didn't have to go back in. What were your plans that you were getting out for the first time? Yeah, so I had been ex- accepted to a college, and I was uh, going to play football for that college. So, And, I, you know, me and Mom had been married for a year, and I wanted to start a life with her outside the Marine Corps. So, And I know you struggled with creating relationships but I never knew quite when that was like if that was after the first time you got out of the Marine Corps or the second time or both so yeah the struggle with relationships happened after the second time yeah after the first time not so no not so much we had this what we called short timers code of conduct I imagine they probably still pass it around the Marine Corps and it probably varies in language but 
you know, it was like a list of 10 things. Like I will not cut my hair for 30 days or I will not shave for the next six months, stuff like that. Right. So just rebellious things. It's like, I'm not in the Marine Corps anymore. And so I'm going to not do the things that you made me do for so long. So they put that in your face so that you'll be rebellious against their Marine Yeah, Corps, so like saying? the, the uh, enlisted underworld created a short, short-timers code of conduct out of rebellion, what, whatever we could get away with, you know. Yeah, I just had kind of a poor attitude getting out, like I'm, I'm ready to get out of this place. And so, but once, once the war happened, and for me it took a few years, and, you know, I'm grateful I was able to finish college so I could go in the capacity as a commissioned officer instead of just re-enlisting. You graduated with a bachelor's in criminal justice, right? Yes, criminal justice with a, uh, a minor in construction management. I'll tell you some funny things about the construction management. So my construction management professor, I needed two classes to finish college. And this is when I was in the National Guard and I had already been let go of the National Guard and was headed towards the Marine Corps. The only stipulation was if I don't succeed in becoming a commissioned officer, I'm still going to be obligated to finish my enlistment in the National Guard. And so I was, I had burned my boats. I was either going to go to the National Guard and deploy with them, or I was going to become a Marine Corps officer and deploy in that capacity. And so I had a lot of motivation to make the Marine Corps thing work. But I still had two classes to finish. One was a, uh, a bidding class for construction projects and the other one was well I forgot what the other one was but the professor let me finish do home study so I was a full-time UPS driver so I was averaging about three hours a night the whole summer because I was doing home study two difficult college courses and driving anywhere from 10 to 12 hours a day with UPS plus family so I was pretty busy that summer but I had a lot of motivation because it was either become an officer or go back to the National Guard, and I didn't want to go back to the National Guard. So I only I only did the construction management minor because I got halfway through it, and I was like, I don't want to start something new. But I took this concrete class, and we had this project where we filled up like a cylinder with concrete, and we were supposed to cure it in different ways. And I let mine sit in the fridge or whatever. And so then we were supposed to put our concrete blocks under a pressure test. And there were some that were really strong and some that were, you know, somewhat strong. And then they put mine. This is like a class of 20. So they put mine under the pressure test. And this, this reminds me of my physics class in high school and my toothpick bridge. They like hung like a baby weight to it and it collapsed, you know. <laughs> So, so they put my concrete block underneath this, this compressor and like with just a little bit of pressure, it was like, and it fell apart. You know, everybody looked at me and I was so embarrassed. I felt so shame, shameful for being such a, such a bag. The professor was like, you suck, dude. (laughs) (laughs) It was awful. I don't get embarrassed very easy, but I was embarrassed on that one. For some reason, I feel like you were telling me about that class. You know, Monsters University, the Pixar movie, when they're sitting in the class about um, the scream cans. 
and they're like falling asleep. Was it kind of like one of those classes? No, the construction stuff was actually pretty interesting to me. Same with criminal justice. I was really interested most. Did you end up using that degree in anything you've done so far or when you were an officer? No. Um, We had an infantry officer that was uh, like a, I don't know, some crazy major, like a chemical biologist or something, and then pre-med guys, this and that, and they just decided they wanted to be in the Marine Corps infantry instead. So criminology doesn't take a genius to, uh, to finish. It's not a really difficult degree, but it's also, in my opinion, probably one of the most interesting because you're learning about the criminal mind so much. You've told me, or I overheard you telling one of your cousins once about when you were trying to decide which MOS you were going to go into as an officer and you were going to go into engineering or something and then at the last minute chose infantry again. Could you tell that story? Because I know mom's reaction was kind of funny. Oh, yeah, it was more than kind of funny. She about divorced me over it. Like, literally, she was pissed. But I can understand why. I mean, she didn't want me to go in the infantry because she was afraid for me. And I had been in the infantry when I was enlisted. But in my mind, what I wanted most to get rid of the regrets that I had from the way that I left the Marine Corps in the first place, I wanted to go to combat and see as much as I could because I felt obligated because so many military members had sacrificed so much. And I thought the least that I could do is go in the best capacity that I could. I love the infantry so much because of the personalities that exist in the infantry Marine Corps that I couldn't see myself doing anything but infantry. But at the same time, I was trying to make my wife happy So we had prayed about it together, and she said she received a confirmation that I should put engineering first for my MOS quests, communications. There was a couple more that were, we call them pogues, people other than grunts. And so I was going to be a pogue, basically. And the thing about being an engineer in the Marine Corps is, at least as an officer, there's seven different engineer MOSs, and only one of them dealt with frontline combat, and that was a combat engineer where they basically dealt with explosives and this and that. So I had a one in seven chance of getting that MOS because once I got the engineer MOS, then it, after that it wasn't up to me where they stuck me. I got called into my captain's office in the basic school, and I love the guy. He was infantry. He had uh, done combat tours as a platoon commander. And he called me in his office and he said, Jant, what the hell are you doing? And I said, uh, what do you mean, sir? He says, Jant, I'll do whatever you want me to do here, but you are going to be miserable if you're not in the infantry. If you go in anything but the infantry, you're going to be miserable. And I knew that was true. And I said, yeah, I know, sir. I said, I'm just, my wife doesn't want me to go in the infantry. And I'm trying to make her happy. As far as Ami knew, I I had agreed with her. Like, I'm going to, I put down what she wanted. 
I told her, hey, this is what I want to, but I was really hesitant. And uh, Captain Rugi, he says, all right. He says, I'll, I'll give you what you want, but you're going to be miserable. And I said, you know what, sir? Give me that list. <laughs> and so I, I put infantry as number one <laughs> and uh, gave him the list back, and that's what I got. And when Ami found out, she flipped a lid. She was so pissed at me, which I don't blame her. How much time did you have between going back into the Corps and then your deployment to Afghanistan? And what was training like before your deployment? Okay, so I went to OCS in September of 2007. After OCS, I had about a month off. And then I went to six months of the basic school. I graduated from that July 4th weekend. And then I think it was a week before that, I actually started the infantry officers course in Quantico, Virginia, where the basic school was. And so it overlapped by about a week. And then I graduated from that in September of 2008. So all of my schooling combined was a year. And then I was assigned to 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines as 3rd Platoon Commander. But they had just gotten back from Iraq, and they were all on a month-long leave. And so basically, I had to report some mornings for a whole month. But I basically got a month of free leave from the middle of September to the end of October when everybody else got back from leave from 3-4. And so uh, you and Emma and Mom and me had a pretty good time during that month and a half, not doing a whole lot work-wise. So we had a lot of time together and stuff. Once they got back, though, it was it was balls to the wall for a whole year. Just train, train, train. And the workup was a lot worse, actually, volume-wise than the deployment itself. So And they do that on purpose so that when you get to the deployment, it, you've been through a lot of tough stuff already. So, yeah, it was a lot of... Sleep deprivation, a lot of uh, shooting, a lot of blowing stuff up. I was the butter bar, the boot. I had to earn some respect before we deployed. And uh, so it was a, a year-long workup. We deployed in October of 2009. Going back to OCS, I had a few questions about that and what it was like compared to boot camp. As far as hazing goes... How was that different than from when you were in boot camp? So I believe there's written rules on things like, let's say, I don't know what the, thing, the rules are in the Marine Corps, but let's say you can only make them do 10 push-ups at a time, right? If you're only making them do 10 push-ups at a time, it's not considered hazing. But those 10 push-ups can actually last half an hour because they can make you hold the up position for five minutes at a time and then do a push up and then hold the up position for five more minutes. So there's always loopholes that don't classify anything as hazing because you're a quote unquote abiding by the rules, but it's pretty dang painful at the same time. I mean, I don't agree with people getting slapped around and punched and that kind of thing or being assaulted but I am a huge fan of a lot of push-ups and make them run till they puke and make them endure, you know, a lot of pain 
because that just builds resilience and makes people stronger. If you're focused on trying to avoid hurting people's feelings or trying to avoid causing pain in somebody, then you're actually taking learning away from people. So I guess your question was the difference between OCS. Yeah, hazing in boot camp versus hazing in OCS. And would you give us the definition of hazing as well? Like what that actually means? Yeah, I don't know the definition of hazing. I could look it up real quick if you want to take a second. Sure. Okay. (laughs) Let's see. Hazing, the imposition of strenuous, often humiliating tasks as part of a program of rigorous physical training and initiation. So I think I think the key word for me there is humiliating. So strenuous, that doesn't to me that doesn't mean hazing. I think I think humiliating is taking somebody in front of a group or in front of somebody else and just basically demeaning them to the point where you think they're less than human and Basically, you really, really feel like they're a piece of crap, and if they died or were caused severe emotional and physical pain, you would have no empathetic feeling for them. Yeah, I don't think making someone do push-ups until they puke or run until they puke is hazing as long as you're not intentionally trying to humiliate them and, and demean them as a human being. From what I've heard, it sounds like hazing is kind of like right on the edge of the rules or like close to what the rules are trying to prevent you from doing as far as like slapping somebody around. But as far as OCS goes, there wasn't a whole lot that was going on. I don't feel like there was any hazing. Our sergeant instructors were fantastic. I don't have any sort of memories of feeling like oh, that's that's not right. I never felt that way. I was I was actually pretty happy and proud that I was there. So you said that after OCS and TBS, you were doing a lot of teamwork training. I guess it's just operating as a platoon. We spent a ton of time together learning to shoot, move, and communicate based on the theater that we were going to, Afghanistan. So learning a lot about the current IED trends and the current tactics of the Taliban and learning how to shoot, move, communicate with each other as a platoon based on that environment or the experience of others who had been to that environment. We're always adapting to the to the new tactics. You worked alongside the Afghan police quite a bit. What was that like? What were their customs? And how does their law enforcement differ from ours in the U.S.? Oh, boy. (laughs) Um, You know, in the U.S. right now, there's a shortage in most police departments of personnel. But those that are there are doing a great job. I got there right when they were trying to implement a lot more advising. And... I got to a police unit that needed about 40-some police officers. 
to operate effectively. And most of the time they had five. There was five dudes on that police force that always showed up. They always went on patrol. They always did. They most, for the most part, were doing what they were supposed to be doing. At one point, we had like 45 police officers in that compound. And I was like, what, what is happening right now? Because <laughs> they had graduated like a basic training, but they had no experience. And they were trying to cram 45 guys in the living space of about, you know, a dozen. Mm-hmm. So it was wild. It was wild. And <laughs> at one point, we tried to do PT with, with them a few times. Oh my gosh, it was so, I've got some video of it. It's so hilarious. Trying to teach them how to do different exercises. And then they were counting in Afghan, you know, or sorry, in Pashto, Afghan, in Pashto. This guy, he was in civilian clothes, he was Afghan, ran out the gate and then two Afghan police officers chased after him. And my Marines at the front gate were like, what is happening right now? They called me up, sir, sir, something's going on. So I ran out there and these two police officers drag this guy back in the compound and then they start beating the crap out of him. They're just hitting him and whipping him. And and I'm like, what's happening right now? And then through the interpreter, they said, this guy abused his mom. We arrested him. He escaped. We had to chase him down. So I'm watching him beat this guy and we're not really supposed to stop him. We're just, we let him be Afghans. You know, the funny thing is, is one of the police officers fell against the wall and he started going, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And he's like, I'm having a heart attack. I'm having through the interpreter. Interpreter's starting to say, he's having a heart attack. He's having a heart attack. And I say, he's not having a heart attack. I said, that's what happens when you actually run. When you exercise, your heart starts pounding. So this guy had never experienced it before. The other police officer is beating this guy. And then he pulls out his pistol and points it at his head. And I grabbed his arm and I pushed it against the wall. So he, he was about to shoot this guy in the head, point blank. I took his pistol from him. I was like, no. I said, you can't shoot him. So that's the only time I really intervened in, in a situation like that. But I wasn't about to let him blow this guy's brains out in front of me. And the guy wasn't even, he had, didn't do anything as far as violent. He just tried to run away, so. How did they interact with you guys? Did they like you guys? Yeah, I was always afraid of, they call it blue on blue, where an Afghan turns on the American forces inside a compound like that or while they're on patrol or something and shoots a Marine in the back or, or does something like that. And so I was I was afraid of that a lot because it happened, you know, a decent amount. And so the five guys that were there consistently the whole time I was there, they really liked us. When you have a high turnover like that and there's new guys coming in all the time, you don't know who to trust and you never be able to prove themselves. So, yeah, I was always, all my Marines, we were always just always watching our back. Didn't trust them for the most part. So there was a few, though. There was a few I really, really learned to love. And Captain Muhammad was one of them. And uh, the district governor's son was another one. And he had a couple couple guys that were part of his crew that were pretty awesome and uh, really enjoyed their company. So, Tell us a little bit more about Muhammad and then your experience with him, you thinking he was dead at one point. So Captain Muhammad and I started building, building a friendship and loved the guy. 
uh, skinny guy, had a beard, and I don't know, his personality and my personality just meshed really well. And even though we spoke to each other through an interpreter, there was just a really good energy there. He had stepped in. He got hired under Colonel, I want to say Caduce, but that sounds weird. It sounds like Caboose, but Colonel Caduce, maybe. I'll just call him Caduce, Colonel Caduce. Anyway, then Colonel Caduce left for like three weeks to a month without telling anybody where he was going. And we found out later he went home for vacation. But he didn't tell anybody. And so after a couple of weeks, Captain Mohammed was left in charge. And so I kept asking, is Colonel Caduce coming back? And, uh, and nobody knew. Captain Mohammed didn't know. Nobody knew. The district governor didn't know what was going on. How did they handle that? Did they not have any sort of communication? He yeah, just he just went, went off, off the, the grid. grid. I mean, he could have communicated. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they had cell phones, but we we started assuming he wasn't coming back, and we had to take some action. So Captain Mohammed, we started giving him more responsibility, and he was taking it and doing good with it. And and so I started talking about Captain Mohammed, like, I guess you're going to be the police chief or whatever, right? And Captain Mohammed's like, yeah, I'll be the police chief. And But in Afghanistan, lots of jealousy. Like, it makes American, makes American jealousy look like... Uh, like that's the way relationships are supposed to be. Here we might just like lose a friend. Over there they try to blow each other up. So all of a sudden, Colonel Caduce is back. I just wake up one morning and he's there. <laughs> and how long has it been? Like a month. And I said, what are you doing back? I thought you were like, we no one knew what happened to you. And he says, oh yeah, I was on vacation. Well, he had gotten word that Captain Mohammed was talking about taking his job or whatever, right? So at that time, we had probably, you know, maybe a couple dozen police officers. He told all of his police officers to suit up and armor up and go on patrol. And so all of them put on their, their sappy plates, their helmets, and they never left the wire this disciplined. Whenever they left the wire, it was just like a gaggle all the time, right? Like, what are these guys doing, right? But in this particular patrol, he told them, he says, you're going to, he inspected them and everything. I'm like, this is the way it should be run, right? This is what we're trying to teach you guys is to do it like this. And so I was flabbergasted thinking something is weird right now. Like this is really weird. And he ordered Captain Mohammed to take charge of the patrol and lead the patrol out the gate. Captain Caduce wasn't going with him, right? Or sorry, Colonel Caduce. And so we had a civilian a couple of civilian, they were police officers back in the States or retired police officers. And we had a couple attached to us. They were, they were us contractors. One of the contractors, his name was Steve. Love the guy. Captain Muhammad put on his sappy plates, but not a helmet. And so he was in the middle of the patrol, walking down the street through the bazaar and me and Steve jump on the gyro cam. It's about 30, 40 feet in the air. And so we can see quite a bit in the city. So we're just zooming in on this patrol and uh, watching them do this patrol. So now I'm going to pause it right there and talk a little bit about my my history with swearing, okay? So I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I hadn't swore really since the first time I was in the Marine Corps. Like, I did not swear. And so I had a really clean mouth, and everybody in my platoon knew that everybody who knew me knew that 
like the gent doesn't swear. He doesn't talk about sex. He doesn't like he's really clean in his language, right? And so Steve has known me for probably a couple months up to this point. And I'm going to I'm just going to quote what I said because it's it was so funny. We're watching on the Jabra cam. We watched the patrol pass this shed and then Captain Muhammad the second that he disappeared behind the shed, a huge explosion went off right where Captain Muhammad was. And the adrenaline of what I just saw and in my mind I believed Captain Muhammad basically just got turned into a million different pieces. And my heart broke at the same time because Captain Mohammed was like my best friend in Afghanistan, right? And I said, I said as loud as I could say it, <laughs> with Steve standing next to me, I said, fuck. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then the police officers started shooting, right? With all these guns going off, I didn't know, this chaos ensued, and I didn't know what was going on. So I ran and got all my gear on and my Marines were on their posts and all the Marines that weren't on post got their gear on and ran to the posts. And uh, I got on top of the roof and there was still shooting going on. AK-47s going off. I don't know what else was going off. And so I was hunched down behind about a three-foot wall on the roof with bullets whizzing over our heads. And all I could say was, over and over again was the F word. I just kept saying it. I just kept saying the F word over and over and over and over again. Because the adrenaline was so crazy. And then when things settled down, I got off the roof and I found Steve and he didn't have his gear on, right? He didn't have his sappies on, didn't have his helmet on. He was still laughing. I said, Steve, I said, where were you at? And he said, I was standing next to you and the IED went off. And you said the F word so loud. He says, I had no idea you were even capable of swearing. He said, I was laughing so hard that I couldn't even function. I was trying to get my gear on, trying to run to my gear. And I couldn't make it because I was laughing hysterically. Then a few minutes later, in walks Captain Mohammed. And I said, what are you doing? I said, you're supposed to be dead. And he said, yeah, I know. <laughs> Through an interpreter, he's like, yeah, I know I'm supposed to be dead, but I'm not alive. <laughs> he, had a, he had a couple scratches on his face from rocks that had hit him in the face. But other than that, he was, he was unscathed. So it was funny because after that happened, I haven't stopped swearing. And that was in, 2000 and, that was in 2009. I don't yeah. swear a whole lot. but um, And I control myself around people, but. I do, I still occasionally swear. I've had different times where it's been worse than other times since 2009, but I don't know. Once that happened, it's like it's turned something on that just I haven't been able to turn off again. Because it was so emotionally traumatic, I I guess. It was funny because Steve, he says, I just, I was watching you run to get your gear on and I was laughing and I'm like, Lieutenant Chint just said the F word. Like it was like this, like a unicorn or something, you know? (laughs) Yeah, he saw a white elephant, that's for sure. And what did you and, sorry, it is Muhammad, right? Yeah, Captain Muhammad. What did your relationship look like after that experience? So when Colonel Caduce came back, I we believed that was an assassination attempt. It was interesting, before Captain, or sorry, before Colonel Caduce left and disappeared, him and Captain Muhammad were 
like they were friends. Like it was, it was a good working relationship. But after he came back and that whole thing failed, like he just had it out for Captain Muhammad. He treated him like dirt all the time. Couldn't stand him, was always trying to get rid of him. But it was kind of out of his control because he was getting orders from his Afghan superiors. So he was basically stuck with Captain Muhammad. And it was sad because I saw Captain Muhammad go down a road of heavy drug usage. And it broke my heart because I love the guy. And, and I think he loved me back even after everything got hard. I don't remember what happened to him, if he was still there when I left or what. But watching that whole thing happen was really, really sad to me. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit. When I was on the roof saying the F word over and over and over again, I was in shock, like utter shock, because being an officer in that situation, it's it's a fairly lonely billet because everybody's basically taking orders from you and looking to you to be their leader, and then you have you have to stay in this position. You're not trying to be buddy-buddy with your Marines because you're still trying to maintain order and discipline, and you have to have a leader in that situation to make final decisions. And so Captain Muhammad was basically my peer in his Afghan role. And we bonded so well together. So for, you know, a good 10, 20 minutes, my best friend was dead. And I was trying to live with that. And then he walked in the gate and it was like, whoa, you're supposed to be dead. And (laughs) he's like, I know I'm not dead. (laughs) But then seeing him go down that road, you know, with the drugs and he was depressed and sad that he was being treated the way he was and I didn't have any control over that you know that was that was hard to watch I've been using Isogenics since 2017 these products have made a world of difference in my quality of life health energy muscle definition strength and endurance my bread and butter products have been the daily essential multivitamins with Isogenesis which is a telomere support supplement, the Isolane meal replacement shake, the Tri-Release protein shake, the collagen, the green drink, and the Cleanse for Life support system. However, Isogenics has many products and can cater to your unique lifestyle and goals. Click the link in the show notes or visit nmp.isogenics.com. That's nmp.isagenix.com to find out more. Besides just using the products, there is an option to partner with me and the company to build your own business with no capital up front. You can do as little as pay for your products and as much as making a full-time income. I love these products and will use them the rest of my life. You can also message me if you have any questions. How many people did you have over you in that unit and how many people were below you? Just kind of like a rough estimate. For seven months, we lived in a Ford operating base, a FOB, inside Delaram City. Delaram City is in Nimru's province, but it's right on the border, like literally within a stone's throw of Helmand province and Farah province. It's right where those three provinces meet. 
So about a mile away, two miles away, there was a big fob where a battalion headquarters was located. But most of the battalion was out doing operations all over the place. That was just basically where the headquarters portion of the battalion was located. And there was other units in there. There was a MARSOC unit, some pilots that stayed over because of... And there was a lot of civilian contractors there and stuff. So, But inside my, inside my FOB, inside the city, I was the platoon commander and the, the senior officer. So I had a platoon sergeant and I had squad leaders in the platoon. So about 30 Marines that were with 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines... Sorry, 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines... India Company 3rd Platoon. So 30, 30 of us were that platoon. Then I had a master gunnery sergeant that was attached to us who was actually a reservist. His job was basically to meet up with village elders and see how he could help them with like schools and hospitals and that kind of thing. Times we had a couple army intel guys attached to us that were staff NCOs, staff sergeants. We had Colonel Caduce and Captain Mohammed, but they were my Afghan counterparts. But I, I was in charge, I guess, to answer your question inside that fob. Like, I was the man that everybody was looking to to be in charge. So, And when this happened with Mohammed, at what point was that in your deployment? I think we got there mid-October. And I think the IED situation happened December sometime. Gotcha. Coming home from Afghanistan, did you feel any sort of remorse from that deployment specifically? Not even just, I guess we should touch on where where your deployment was in your officer years as well. Like, was that a year into being an officer or two years or how much time did you have left before you separated from the Marine Corps? When I got back from Afghanistan, I had exactly a year left under my contract. So I was only with 3-4 for another month after our deployment ended. And then I was attached, sorry, I was assigned the officer in charge billet at the rifle and pistol range in 29 Palms, California. And I, I was in that position for about six months. And then I was attached to the headquarters battalion for the base for about five months. But at two of those months, I had two months of terminal leave again. So I only, I only spent time in the headquarters battalion officially working for about three months and I only ever did one thing for him I did a command investigation on a marine that had gotten in a car accident and other than that all I did for three months was go to the gym read and write and then was only on base for like three days a week and my command was really really nice you you and mom and Emma had we had moved back to Utah I basically get four-day weekends every week. So it was pretty cake. Yeah, it sounds like it. What were your thoughts and feelings when you officially separated? Uh, I struggled for a couple of years wanting to, wanting to deploy again. After that deployment, I was I was struggled. I wanted to deploy again and go back. 
it was maybe some survivor's guilt and just a lot of obligation. Like I didn't do enough and I need to do more because there's more to be done and other people are doing it and I shouldn't be selfish. I should go back over. I loved being with Marines that were, I mean, we were pretty, pretty tight. Like I felt like they really, really loved each other. And I really, I trusted all of them. And when you're in an environment like that, where it's that danger, but then you have 30 other Marines that are willing to, to do whatever they have to do for each other. It's a pretty amazing feeling and something that you want to just relive, you know? So not having that anymore was, was hard. You were telling me about the day you separated and your like going away celebration. Oh yeah. So, <laughs> so when I was the officer in charge at the rifle and pistol range, I had basically 50 infantry Marines that were working out there with me. And so it was like, I was a platoon commander again. It was, it was really great. And they were all separating too. So these were, a lot of them were from my unit. So I knew a lot of them and they were separating too. And they just needed a place to work so that they weren't doing a workup for a deployment because they weren't going to go on a deployment. So they put them at the rifle range with me and my water bottle that I brought to work with me every day was a Hello Kitty water bottle. And it was, <laughs> where did you get it? It was from you. I think I oh, stole yeah. your water bottle. You stole my water bottle. <laughs> I stole your water. I think you were five. You were five, and I'm like, "This is my water bottle." You're you're always <laughs> stealing water bottles, though. Yeah. If you don't have a juice jug, so, you're stealing a water bottle. <laughs> I mean, I don't buy stuff. I find mm -hmm. stuff. I, yeah. It's not that I steal stuff. I don't do that a whole lot. I mean, the last time I did that, there was this pre-workout that was in this locker at the gym for like two months, and it hadn't moved a, a, a millimeter. And I'm thinking. I watched it for two months and I thought, you know what? No one's coming back for this pre-workout. So I'm taking it. It's mine. So it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the last time I did that. But I, you know, I have a junk removal business and so I don't have to buy a lot of stuff. I get stuff. <laughs> so if you can't get it off a job, you'll get it from your kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I got a funny story about this. I'll tell you, I'll tell you this story after the Hello Kitty water, water bottle. So I, I brought, my Hello Kitty water bottle to the range, the rifle and pistol range every day. And when the new gunner, they call him a gunner, he was a warrant officer, was assigned to the rifle range. So a gunner is supposed to be the officer in charge at the rifle range, but they didn't have one to replace the old gunner. And they saw me, hey, he's separating. We don't need him to work up with us for this next deployment. So where can we put him? Oh, we need an officer at the rifle range. So that's where they put me. And uh, it was fantastic. I loved it. Um, pretty easy gig. So I was there for about six months. And when I was leaving, my last day, 50 Marines threw me a going away party. And they had bought me a Hello Kitty birthday cake. It's, they gave me a plaque, too. They didn't put Hello Kitty on the plaque. But uh, they put something like, uh, thank you, sir, for your service at the rifle range. We... Uh, Really enjoyed having you, and here's your Hello Kitty birthday cake. So, when I first got to the fleet with Third Battalion, Fourth Marines as a platoon commander, this is before. This is when everybody was still on leave in October of 2008. I was driving driving around base 
for some reason going somewhere on base. And with the, the deployments, they hand out hygiene kits. There's a lot of stuff given pre-deployment, after deployment. And so there was this giant box. I mean, I'm talking like, I'm talking half the size of a washing machine box, okay? So that was a big box. And it was full of individually packed hygiene kits. So in the hygiene kit, you got soap, toothbrush, shaving cream, razors, you know, everything hygiene-wise is in a packet about the size of a football. And this box was full of them, okay? In the church, we're taught to have a year supply of essentials, right? Food, hygiene, water, this and that. So in my mind, I'm thinking, how can I, I would like save MREs that weren't eaten in the field and I would save them up and use that as food storage, right? So as I was driving around based on this particular day, I saw a couple of these boxes that were full of these hygiene kits next to a barracks in the parking lot. And they were in a position where they were just going to toss them, throw them away. I think they're next to a dumpster or something. And so I was like, I was like, sweet. And I pulled in the park, the parking lot and I, gra- I squatted down and I grabbed this giant box of hygiene kits and I was like walking half squatted because it was so heavy that I had to kind of rest it in my lap as I like kind of squat walked back to the car to try to put it in the trunk. I've got second lieutenant bars on my collar and as I'm trying to cram this giant box in my in my Dodge Neon trunk, okay, 2002 Dodge Neon, right? I got this Marine on the on the catwalk up above me. I didn't see him until he shouted at me. He's like, hey, sir, <laughs> are you finding anything good? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, all right. And then I just crammed it in the trunk and drove off. So he totally pointed me out. Yeah. <laughs> Threw me into the bus. Yeah, yeah. It was funny. Who was? Oh, I was talking to Nicole's boyfriend the other day. And he's like, yeah, I coach basketball. It's basically something me and my girls can do together. Like me and my dad like to dumpster dive together. <laughs> I'm like, we'd, <laughs> we've never really played yeah. sports together, but we've always dumpster dived together. My dad never taught us sports. He taught us how to dumpster dive life skills street smarts yeah mom's personality kind of took over and you guys went the dancing route anyway so as far as like talents go or something even remotely close to sports but what was your favorite part about raising kids as a marine like what was something that different that you saw in yourself and your parenting style versus people around you that you saw raising kids yeah, I didn't see much difference. I mean, being a member of, of our church, it's pretty rare around the world. I mean, in, in the whole world, there's 17, 18 million members. And so in the Marine Corps, it's even more rare. You know, you get in a thousand Marine battalion, you might have four or five members of our church and three of them are Jack Mormons. So it's it's not super common. So as far as sta- Christian standards go, uh, they're high, but at the same time, all Marines with families are in the same position, and so there's a lot of similarities. I didn't, I never felt like I was better because I was a member of the church, or less because I was a member of the church. I, 
as far as families intermingling, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of bias that way. It was like, we're all doing the same thing here and we're all uh, filling the same burdens. So we had that to build the camaraderie uh, between families. The religious aspect of it always came second as far as uh, that goes. We just weren't super judgmental, I don't think. Is there anything you want to leave us with as far as civilian life goes or overcoming PTSD or any sort of mental struggles that you may have had? Yeah, in relation to my military service, I mean, I'm a, I'm a believer in spiritual beings, and so I felt like when I came back from Afghanistan, I had a dark spirit attached to me, and it felt like it was attached to me for, I don't know, maybe a good six months to a year after I let, I got out of the Marine Corps, and it was, I had a lot of anger issues uh, to the point where, you know, mom was on the verge of leaving me and stuff, and I just, I mean, I, ne I was never abusive, but I was, I was angry and I isolated, I isolated myself. Being a UPS driver was perfect because all I had to do is run into a business real quick, get a signature for a package or leave a package on a doorstep. I didn't have to talk to people a whole lot. And I worked oftentimes 10, 12 hours a day. And so it was a perfect breeding ground to keep me isolated from the isolation that I was already feeling. And so I just continued to feed that isolation. And what really, what really got me out of that was quitting UPS and moving to Hawaii and starting my own business. Because I realized by starting my own business, if I'm going to be successful, I have to start liking people. I have to start connecting with people so that they want to hire me. That motivation got me to get outside myself. I, mean, I still struggle some days to really be go internal and struggle with selfishness, but I found that the best way for me to cope and deal with post-traumatic stress is to stop isolating myself from other people, see what I can do to serve other people and in a, in a very selfless way. So sometimes we have agendas where like, I'm going to do this for somebody because I want this as a result doing it just to do it because you want that other person to be lifted up and feel good about themselves. That's what I'm talking about. And that's what helps me overcome uh, the daily fight that it wants to be um, an isolationist or something. So yeah, that and the gym. Yeah. <laughs> You're adamant that about the gym. the gym. Gym is first every day. And you do both at the same time, too. You make friends at the gym. I know that. Yeah, for sure. sure. Thanks, Rebecca, for doing this. I love you. I love you, too. Till next time. Thank you for listening. Please tell your friends and family so that we can bring more joy and awareness to those struggling with suicide ideation and the families who desperately need help after the loss of someone they love to suicide.